Go ahead and take a seat. Good morning, church. Hope you're well by God's grace. And even though several of us are sick, as was already shared, we don't want to scare you away. It's good to be here. God gave you an immune system, so you'll be all right. Um, and we're glad to be here and worship God together. Uh, as Pastor Doug already shared, it's a new year. It's the first Sunday of the new year, um, and New Year's resolutions are great. I hope you made some. People, don't, people are all over on this, right? Don't make New Year's resolutions. You're going to fail. Well, you know it's better to exercise half the year than not at all? So it's okay. Like, just do half of it, okay? Um, or it's better to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read my Bible more, and maybe it's just going to be a little bit better than last year. That's great. Do it. Do it for the glory of God. And like, like was shared, I would just encourage you, make it simple. I want to love God more and live for him. That's it. I just want to love God more and live for him. Wouldn't that be great? As a church, if we finished this year and said we loved God more and we lived for God more, uh, we, would, we would serve one another more, we would serve our community more, we would take the gospel more to the lost. So let's just love God and live for him, okay? Uh, keep it really simple. And if you want to sketch that out somehow in your life, that'd be great. But let's just love the Lord and live for him as a church body. Well, this morning we're going to go to Romans chapter 3. I asked the elders if I could do something a little different this morning. It, communion was supposed to be last week, uh, but I wanted to start the new year with communion. Um, we are called to remember Christ every time we gather. Uh, you may have been a part of traditions that every time, literally every time they get together, they have communion. And actually, it's a very literal understanding of what, God, of what Jesus said, right? As often as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. Now, we don't have to do that, uh, but it is good for us to remember Christ. And, and sometimes communion becomes somewhat perfunctory, right? Like, uh, yep, this doesn't even taste very good. I wonder who touched it. Why do we have to do this? And we can kind of miss the point. And so this morning, I just wanted to start, start our new year with remembering Jesus together. And so we're going to go to Romans 3, and we're just going to kind of just do a meditation, if you will, a devotional through the preciousness of our Messiah. And I would hope that by the time we get to communion in a, in a half hour or 40 minutes, you'll be more excited for communion than you've been in a long time. You'll be more excited to do this thing called remembering our Savior as a body. You'll just be like, wow, this is amazing. So in public speaking, there's a... There's kind of some rules to go by, and one is you better know how to take, take off and land the plane, all right? And if you're not very good at taking off or landing, it ends up, no matter what you say in the middle, it all falls apart. So this morning, I have, I have three runways. I'm going to take you down all three, okay? We're going to take off three times, because I couldn't figure out which one was the best. So I just, I just, I'm breaking the rule, and I'm telling you up front, I'm breaking the rule, okay? The, the, first, the first runway to go down is that we live in a society of non-thinkers. We're just not thinkers. And I'm not trying to be mean to any of you, and I honestly don't have anybody's face in mind when I say this, but just look at social media and look at how much we don't think. It's just, it's great, right? Just the things that people believe, and, and, and we've all been guilty of it. You know, we, we read an article and we think we know more than everybody else on it. You know, that the, it used to be don't believe everything you read on the internet. Now it's the only place we read. And so who knows what you believe. 
But we really are a society of non-thinkers. And this isn't just me talking and being critical of the 21st century. There's a lot of studies by secularists showing we're just not a society of thinkers. We're a society of, of tweets. Just give me a headline. I mean, how, how many of you get your news in less than 15 second increments? You just, boom, I see it. Oh, there we go, I got it. And you really think you know what's happening in Zimbabwe because you saw a headline. Right? That's just how we are. We're, we're, we're wired for this like quick snippets of information. And then we get so, so arrogant. We actually will like argue with people like, no, I know the truth. I saw this somewhere sometime. And, and that's devastating for our society. As believers, we should be so committed to truth. Not just truth in scripture, but truth in life. That we want to believe truth. Like we want to dig deep and find truth. Well, it actually has devastated the Christian church as well because Christianity, it, it, this, this is a written word of God, meaning we need to steady it. We need to engage our minds to know God. And we struggle with that. And so what we've done in American Christianity is we've simplified it. And there's simplicity that's beautiful. Jesus loves you. That's wonderful. God's forgiven you through the work of Jesus. That's wonderful. But if you have stripped down Christianity to, to those things and those things alone, and you haven't thought deeply about some of the great truths of Scripture, you're missing out on what God has for you. And this morning, we're going to begin to dip our toe, if you will. It's going to be like approaching the sea, and you're just going to dip your toe in of this truth called justification by faith alone. And it's a, it's a truth that, that is simple enough for children to understand and deep enough for theologians to get lost in. But there has been more heresy on this issue over the course of church history. There's more heresy today over this issue. It is why we stand as Protestants, because we actually believe that we are justified in Jesus alone, not our performance. And so we have to be committed to this justification by faith. And it's going to call us to think. It's going to be beautiful, and I think it's actually fairly simple, but we have to think. And in a society of non-thinkers, we, we can ignore these beautiful doctrines, these beautiful things that God has for us. There's the first runway. Okay? The second runway is this. Romans 3, 21 to 26, but in the mind of most theologians, is the center of the Bible. This is not the center of the Bible, like, geographically, page number-wise. It's the center of Revelation. It's all of Scripture could be somehow fit into Romans 3, 21 to 26. You could find everything right there. And so we're going to read this, and I think you're going to see, oh, yeah, that makes sense. This is the bullseye of Scripture, if you will. What is, what is the Word of God about? What is God's plan? What is God's desire? Romans 3, 21 through 26 would be a great place for us to go. And so that's where even for this new year, where could we start off the new year? Romans 3, 21 to 26. Because we desperately need it. We desperately need it. And that's to our third runway, that we all have the memories of goldfish. We just are really good at forgetting. Aren't we? I mean, we just, we just, it's like, we, yeah, I know that. Next. It's like, oh, I've heard that before. And there are things that are, it's okay to forget. 
like there's classes you took in high school. It doesn't matter that you forgot it. You're living a very happy life without those pieces of information. But there are some things that to forget is really, really bad. Like you, you, you don't want to forget some of the basic essentials of life, like breathing. Right? You, now you're like, I don't even think about breathing. Well, stop for a while. You'll think about breathing. It's good to breathe. And you know what? Your brain never forgets to tell your body to breathe. It's always happening, and you desperately need it. One of the simplest things that happens in the human existence, and it just is always happening. And the moment you stop, you're gasping for air. As Christians, we, we need to come back to Christ over and over and over because we have a world that is vying for our attention. It is pulling us from him at every level. Not only our world, but our own flesh and sin, right? Just what's in us. I don't wake up thinking happy thoughts about Jesus. I wake up thinking about how I want to go back to bed. I wake up thinking about how it's colder out there than in here. And I want to stay. I wake up thinking about all the things I have to do today that I don't want to do. That's just within me. And I forget who Christ is, what he's done for me, and how I desperately need him. So with all of that being said, let's go to Romans chapter 3. And we're going to pick up in verse 21. And know that this is coming after Romans 1, 17 through 320. And that has formed the first major section of the book of Romans. That first major section is essentially this, you're not righteous and God is. That's the first major section of Romans. And Romans 3.21 is going to change us to begin to show us how do we actually become righteous. We've been arguing up until 3.20 for how we are not righteous. We're going to go back and dip into that a little bit to see how unrighteous we actually are. But he's going to change now. And that's even indicated by the first two words of verse 21. What's he say? But now. Okay, so we're going to pick it up there. Something's changing in what Paul has, is saying here. And let's look at it together. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us now? Would you expose these glorious truths to our heart this morning? Would you remind us once again of who we are before the holy, awesome, righteous God of the universe? And would you remind us of what you've done for us in Jesus this morning? Would you warm our affections once again for Christ? Would you kindle those affections and cause us to love you more as we gaze deeply into your word together? And in Christ's name, 
amen. Well, let's go back. We're just going to walk through this section by section, and Lord willing, be richly blessed by God's word. Look at verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. What was the point of the law? We use the word law when Paul uses the word law. There's lots of debate on it, but essentially we know he's referring to the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Pentateuch, uh, particularly the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But he's referring to these, these ancient writings, and he says, these writings, they showed that God was righteous. Have you, have you ever read those first five books, and you come away with, wow, God, you're, you're full of anger towards sin. Like, you really hate this thing called sin, right? And you're, you're almost disgusted by it sometimes. Like, oh, really? They all had to die? I mean, it was just he that sinned. Why did they all have to get wiped out? Just because Achan blew it? Really? And just pick another person? And you see God's judgment on evil. And then you see all these rules they got to obey. Just another one, and another one, and another one. And you're like, isn't that enough? Like, God, do you really care about how many cloven hoofs they have? Like, why do you care about the split in the hoof of an animal? Why do you care about what part they eat and what they don't eat? All this is revealing one real simple thing. God's righteous, we're not. That's it. You read the law, and you should be struck with this over and over and over. God, you're not like me. That's it. Like, you're not like me at all. And you read it, and you read it over and over, and you keep coming to that same conclusion. I don't even, you're, you're so unlike me, I don't even get you sometimes, God. That's how unlike you, God is. And God has a word for that. The word is righteous. He has no imperfection. We don't use that word to speak of humanity. Unless you're like a Southern California surfer. Okay? We don't use the word. Because we aren't righteous. At all, in any way. There's no righteous house. There's no righteous car. There's no righteous person. There's no righteous business. Nothing's righteous. Because righteous has the idea of total perfection in every way. And here, we see that the righteousness of God has been revealed. That's the word manifested, revealed apart from the law. So it was revealed in the law. He's saying, but now it's been revealed apart from the law. So what revealed the righteousness of God in a different way? Well, thanks for asking. Go back to Romans 1 and look at verse 16. We've already read it this morning, a verse that a lot of people know well. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But what about verse 17? For in it, what is it? It's a reference back to the gospel in verse 16. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So this then begs another question. How does the gospel reveal the righteousness of God? This is the question that's plagued theologians for centuries. How does the gospel reveal righteousness? Well, first off, the gospel is just a shorthand reference for Jesus coming and dying in your place. So let's be clear on that. The gospel, simply put, is Jesus, God, became man to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death you could never die. That's the gospel. So, for in the gospel, 
the righteousness of God is revealed. You see, in the Old Testament, you see God giving his people a whole bunch of rules. These rules were never meant to justify them. They weren't. That's why he gave them a sacrificial system. The rules were meant to show you can't be perfect. You need a savior. That's why I'm going to give you sacrifices. So if God expected them to keep the law in perfection, he would have never given them sacrifices. Because they fail, you're dead. But that's not the point. The point was, here's a whole bunch of laws. By the way, you're going to fail. Here's a system called, the, called sacrifices so that when you fail, you'll be pointed to your need for a redeemer. That was God revealing righteousness. You're not righteous. I'll provide substitute for you to be righteous. Well, you get to Jesus and you see God finally saying, okay, I've had enough. Humanity can't be righteous. I'm going to send the one who can be. I'm going to reveal the righteousness of God to the entire globe. They're going to see the full perspective of God's righteousness in this man called Jesus. They're going to get to gaze in the character of God like nobody's ever seen. The righteousness of God is going to be revealed. Not only that, you saw it in his life, but you really see it in his death. Because you see God's righteousness being so important that it kills the Son of God. He, his righteousness, he couldn't just say, okay, go, go live a good life and come back to heaven. No, he had to vindicate the righteousness of God for all humanity who's run from him for all of time. And so here he says, the gospel revealed the righteousness of God. God's commitment not only to send his son, but to kill his son shows just how righteous God is. And we better be thankful that he's not just righteous, but he's consummately loving as well. Because if he was simply righteous, we would be annihilated for our sin. So in the gospel, we see the, the full effect of his righteousness and his grace and his mercy towards humanity. So, verse 21, but now, that's a really big interjection. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Oh, he says, the law and the prophets, they bore witness to it. They, they talked about it. We could go through the Old Testament and show how the law and the prophets, they bore witness to righteousness. They talked about the Messiah who would come. I mean, Jesus in Luke 25 went, so, or Luke 24, said he went through the, the, the law and the prophets and he told the disciples all the things concerning himself. He, they were speaking of him and his righteousness. They knew he was coming. In verse 22, they bore witness to it, but the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. This gospel revealed the righteousness of God through or by faith in Jesus. So I want to be clear here this morning. We're talking about God's righteousness. And at the end of the day, this really has nothing to do with you and me because we're not righteous. This is going to be about God doing something in you, making you righteous. But it's interesting to note in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith. And this is where we would say, there's a call upon you and I to believe the gospel. You are called to believe. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham wasn't a guy to model your life after. He believed God and was counted righteous. That's the point of Old Testament stories. Not be like Abraham, but 
but actually believe in his God. Believe in his God, and that God will make you righteous, just like he made Abraham righteous. And when I mean righteous, I don't mean that you and I live perfect lives. I mean that before God, we're not actually seen as sinners, which we'll get there more in a minute, which is really mind-blowing. I love what he says here, the righteousness of God through faith. And we're going to come back to this because, brothers and sisters, we must believe. And if you're here this morning and you're just giving mental affirmation, like, oh, yeah, I go to church. I believe in God. You do not know what it means to be justified by faith. So we're going we're to get to the heart of that later. But all who believe, and there is no distinction. There's no distinction. No distinction in what? Jew, Gentile, slave, free. There's no distinction. We don't, God does not look at this and say, well, you know, because of your heritage, your background, you've got a little bit of an up than the rest of humanity. I'm going to give you a pedestal, a jumping off point that's a little bit better than everybody else. That's not how God operates. There is no distinction. Why? Why is there no distinction? Because of verse 23. Again, thank you for asking. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction because sin levels the playing field. You know, in any of my travels over the years, you know the gospel doesn't need to change. You can drop a Christian in any culture in the world, and oh yeah, there's cultural nuances that people need to learn. But at the end of the day, the message is the same. Turn from your sin and trust Jesus as your Savior. You know, you go to a foreign country, and the same sins that plague us plague them. Anger, abuse, addiction, all the same ones. doesn't change. Why? Because all have sinned. Now, let's go back to the beginning of Romans 3. Because Paul, under divine inspiration, gave us a great description of sin. And this morning, if you're new here at EGBC, I want you to know that when I speak of, of sin, I, it's, it's not to belittle you. We're actually saying that all of us have this same problem. I realize the sin word is not discussed often in evangelicalism today. It's kind of ignored and marginalized because it makes me feel bad. But there's actually really good news to being a sinner. And if you really embrace the, the good news of being a sinner, then you're ready to receive Jesus. So let's talk about the sin problem we all have. Look at Romans 3, verse 10. Here we have Paul quoting the Old Testament. Romans 3:10. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. Do you know what the Greek means there? No one's righteous. Not one. There's no fancy things going on here. There's no other way to understand this. There's no slipping through the cracks like, well, I mean, maybe so-and-so. Nope. No one's righteous. Not even one. This is, it's get, it, gets, it gets worse, folks. No one understands, no one even seeks for God. Now this is where you might be like, now hold on. I sought after God. Not according to this. You might have sought after a better life and you wanted God to help you. Isn't that what a lot of people mean when they seek after God? I just want God to make me happy, so I'm going to seek after God. No, you're not seeking God, you're seeking your happiness. And you just wanted God to tag along so that maybe he could help out a little bit. 
That's not seeking God. That's seeking your own pleasures. But that's how so many people today seek after God. Well, well, maybe for somebody else, it's just, I've had a really rough year, and I've heard that God will kind of alleviate that pain a little bit, so I'm going to turn to this God thing for a while and see if God will, will help my pain go away. That's not seeking after God. That's trying to get God to do what you want him to do. And we could go on and on with all the reasons people seek after God. But at the end of the day, according to Romans 3.23, what we actually seek is our own glory and our own fame. And we do not seek after the God of heaven on our own. We go our own way. And, and I, do, I do believe this because it's in the scriptures that if you're honest with your heart this morning, you'll, you'll say, yeah, that's me. I seek after my own way. I just, it's where I go. It's when I'm left to myself, when I'm not thinking biblical truth, I go my own way. I don't seek after God. Well, it gets worse. Verse 12, all have turned aside. There's a path called the straight path, the narrow path. He says, all have turned aside. And together, they've become worthless. Again, this is not a self-help talk this morning, okay? This is a God saying, you've turned aside, and it's absolutely worthlessness. It's getting you nowhere. Have you ever had a loved one destroy their life in addiction? Addiction's a great analogy in my mind for the worthlessness of sin. Because in addiction, in addictive behavior, somebody is destroying their life and everybody else can see it but the person destroying their life. Right? They've gone, they've gone their own way. It's worthlessness, but it's still self, it's just self-destructive. But at the end of the day, they think they're right. So it's easy to see that in addictive behavior, but can you see that in your own life? It's easy to pick on somebody with a real bad habit. But how about our own hearts where it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. I, um, I go my own way. I think it's okay to be angry because my kid deserved it. So I go my own way. I, I'm, I'm justified in my behavior because, well, frankly, God failed me. And so we go our own way. And so he says, you've turned aside. It's worthlessness. No one does good. Not even one. Man, that's... That's not popular. We live in a world that says, hey, we're basically good people who occasionally make mistakes. Isn't that kind of how society talks? We're basically good people. Now, you know what? Can I, can I just time out here quick? We have people in our world that do not know Jesus, that do good things. You know why? Because they're made in the image of a good God. That's it. If an unbeliever does anything praiseworthy, it's because they actually, in that moment, reflected the image of the God they're made in. That's it. But what do we most of the time do? We go our own way. And when I say a good thing, I'm not talking about a justification behavior. I'm just talking about they did something genuinely nice, like something genuinely selfless, because they're made in the image of a good God. That image is marred in humanity, but not gone. So we, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. In other words, it stinks with a horrible, vile, awful stench. What comes out of your mouth is a reflection of what's in your heart. We don't like that either, do we? We say, I didn't mean it. I was only joking. If you didn't 
do that, I wouldn't have said anything. We just have all these ways of deflecting because we don't want to admit what Jesus said is actually true out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. So whatever comes out of you is actually what's inside of you. And here he says it's an open grave. It's a festering wound. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of bitterness and curses. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And then he says this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That fear of God that causes you to say, God, you are good and your plan for me is good and I will follow you doesn't exist. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a divinely inspired description of all sinners. Okay? And now I want to make it clear this morning. If you're in Christ, this is no longer you. This was you. Okay? I do not beat Christians up with verses like this because this is who you were. When, when Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, that's not to the Christian. That was to the pagan. That was to the unbeliever. So we say we've been given new hearts. We've been transformed. We have the power of the Spirit. We can walk by the power of the Spirit. But we need to recognize this is who I was. This is, apart from Jesus, this is who I am. And if you're here this morning and you're like bristling you're, because you don't believe this is you, then you do not know Jesus. So you need, to, you need to know him. You need to turn and say, I actually see that's me. I'm not a basically good person who screws up sometimes. I am a rebellious sinner who runs from God at every level. Even if I'm here in church on Sunday, I run from God at every level. you see that here? Is this not the heart of the scriptures? Mankind is sinful. Totally sinful. God does not stroke your ego. Okay, God does not tell you that you are a good person with a happy future and that he just wants to bless you, right? That, those are scriptures ripped out of context, right? Where pe- and you, you've read those books, you've seen those postcards, Bible verses ripped out of context to make you feel better about yourself and your sin. That's not the message of the Word of God. The message of the Word of God is we are broken entirely. Are you, are you broken this morning? As I'm walking through Romans 3, are you sitting there saying, that's me. Like I, That's who I am. I am that unrighteous one. I am that one who goes my own way. I don't seek after God. If that's you this morning, there is hope for you. There is immense hope for you. And if, if, you, if, you're, if you are in Christ this morning, I want you to, to be honest, to think back and say, oh Lord, that is so what I was. And apart from your grace, that's exactly where I would be. So, he says, there's no distinction because all have sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. Listen to this statement. Natural man will always delight more in the glory of the created thing than in the creator himself. Just read Romans 1. We love to magnify the creation. So I'm an outdoorsy guy. I love creation. I love being out in creation. And so on 
on Instagram, I follow some of the major big brands for outdoor stuff, which that means nothing to most of you, that's fine. Um, but these companies will take pictures of great places in the world that I'll never get to see, and, and so I can just see these beautiful parts of creation. But what I find is so interesting is all of these corporations, truly all of them, they worship the creation. They, they do Romans 1, and they do it really well. Save our land. Global warming is destroying the world. And you could just keep going on and on. Now, that's fine. We can talk about politics. It's fine. It's all good. At the end of the day, God's sovereign. And it's his. That's what I'm talking about. It's his. And these companies who take beautiful pictures of, of parts of the globe, they have no clue that it's his. They've, they're worshiping the creation, not the creator. Because natural man will always worship the creation. We're okay with the creation. We don't want the creator. Because the creator is righteous, and we don't want to deal with righteousness. So we just want the creation. It's beautiful. Let's enjoy it. But isn't that what we do? We, we, we delight in the gifts of God, not the giver. Right? We, we want the blessings of God, like a happy life. God, give it to me. Oh, you didn't give it to me? Fine. I'm done with you. Because you didn't give me what I wanted. You're not delighting in the creator. You're delighting in his gifts, and he took them back. You know, so Pastor Doug, talk about sickness going around. Yeah, my family has been sick as a dog this week, okay? Um, thankfully, I've been okay. I'm not going to shake you guys' hands afterwards. I don't want to get you sick. Um, but, yeah, I've never seen my wife so sick. Literally, it's been bad. Uh, so get your flu shot, do your essential oils, whatever you do, okay? And, uh, and stay healthy, all right, because it's bad. But you know what? My wife and I were talking about this. Uh, yesterday because she was the first time she could talk all week and she was kind of in that whispery state just how grateful we are that that we don't we, we don't live with constant pain now some of you do and 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 whenever I'm sick it reminds me God you've really blessed me but you know what I was talking to my boys this week as they were getting fevers and puking because of their fevers and all that grand stuff right guys God is still good God is still good how can we praise him, even though we're laying on the sofa and you can't move? How can we praise him? Because he's good. Why, why am I doing that? Because human nature wants to rejoice in the gifts, doesn't it? It just wants to go after the gifts. And he says, here, no, no, you need to worship the creator. And so here he says, you sin. What, do you, what does it mean? It means that you have fallen short of the glory of God. It means you live for the glory of everything else. So here's a, a definition of sin. Based on Romans 3.23, sin is essentially the rejection of God and his glory as the supreme value of our lives. God, here's who you are. I don't think so. I'm going to go my own way. Here's who you are and what you've revealed in your word. Your infinite, awesome, majestic glory. Uh, I've got a better idea. I'm going to go after my own way. Sin considers God and his glory. And instead of loving God's glory and treasuring God's glory... Sin exchanges God's glory for something else. That's the heart of sin. Exchanging the glory of God for something else. In that moment where I sin and fall short of the glory of God, I am a functional atheist. I don't care, God. I don't care about you and your glory. I don't care about you and your plan. I'm going my own way. Isn't that the heart of atheism? I don't care. <laughs> in your word, I'm doing my own thing. I'm going to go after the gifts, not the giver. 
all have sinned, and, and this, the language here is very clear, to fall short of the glory of God is to lack giving him glory. I said a few Sundays ago, we're the only thing in creation that doesn't glorify God. That's it. We're the only ones. Because remember from, from Luke chapter 2, the angels came, they showed up, and they glorified God. We're the only ones who don't. Read your Bible. Like, read the story of Jonah, for instance. In the book of Jonah, the whale glorifies God. The unbelieving sailors glorify God. The, the stinking gourd grows and glorifies God. The people of Nineveh, who are maybe the worst people on the face of the planet, glorify God. And there's one guy who doesn't. His name is Jonah. He says, no, God, I'm not going to glorify you. Look at the life of Jesus, and you see creation implicitly glorifying God. Everything he says, creation obeys, glorifies God. And then there's us. Like, no, God, I think I'm good. I know better. Oh, we're so foolish. We, have, we sin, and we lack giving glory to God. So there's our condition. Romans 3, 21, 22, and 23. There's a righteousness that's been shown in the gospel. It's a righteousness that's, that's different, if you will, more fully complete than what the law showed. It's righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus for all who believe. And there's no distinction because all are equally sinners. Do you find yourself there this morning? We should all be running for the front of the line. Yep, that's me. Yep, yep, I'm the line leader today. I'm a sinner. Yep, I'm, I'm right there, Romans 3.23, that's me. And I am not righteous. So let's look at verse 24 and following. So all these sinners fail to give God glory. And then look at 24. And are justified. The word justified is the same root word as the word righteous, just in the verb form. This is really important because if you read through the book of Romans, or really all of Paul's writings, you see the word justify and righteous go back and forth. And I wish a translator would just stick with one of them. And nobody does it. Okay, so your Bible doesn't either. Um, so it bothers me because it confuses us. Look at what he says. There's righteousness, the righteousness of God. That's verse 21. Then 22, righteousness of God through faith. And verse 24, and are justified. The word justified is simply, and are declared righteous. That's the word. It's just the verb form of dikaiosune. So you're justified, you're declared righteous by his grace as a gift. This little statement has been the watershed on church history time and time again. After Martin Luther's 95 thesis in the door of Wittenberg, like this was the heart that he went after. He said, no, no, we don't believe the same gospel. And it was this statement. Like so many religions today teach, and they teach a, a justification that says God makes you righteous in part so that you can be righteous. It's, it's a dual justification. God does his part, you do your part, and at the end of the day, voila, you're righteous. That's not what's going on here. It's a God alone does something. It's interesting, the verb here, you are justified, are declared righteous, is, is what's called a passive, meaning it's, a, it's being done to you. 
You're not doing this action at all. It's an action that God is doing to you. You're simply sitting there. And you believe by faith. And God does something. He makes you righteous by his grace as a gift. Now, the, it's important to just to step back and, and think about being made righteous. This is a legal term. It's, it's something you would hear in courtrooms, that you are righteous. Now, the point here is not it's just that Jesus makes you righteous. It's that God the Father, when you call out and believe by faith in Jesus, he actually says, you are righteous. Not just you're not guilty. Not just you're forgiven. But you obeyed the law perfectly. You and me. We, we don't do that. We don't obey anything perfectly. But in this act called justification, God actually looks upon you and says, you're righteous. Not just, not just a measure of it. Not just, not just mostly. But it's as though you fully obeyed God from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death. Are you, is that, does that blow your mind? If it didn't, let me say it again. When God declares you to be righteous, it's as though from the moment you were born to the moment you die, you never failed him at all. Now, now remember who you and I are. We're Romans 3.23. We don't live for the glory of God. We deserve the wrath of God. And then in, he just, the very next, sen- very next sentence, you're declared righteous. By his grace as a gift. I love this because it's a gift. You can't pay for it. And it's by grace you can't work for it. You, you can't. You see, I've, I've interacted with so many religious people who will say, you know, Brother Justin, here's the thing. I'm going to do my part. And when I get there, God will do his part. If God left it up to you to do your part, we would all go to hell. He didn't leave it up to you. He can't leave it up to you because we're Romans 3.23 kind of people. We're, we're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. And so he says, you must be justified by his grace as a gift, which that's a redundant statement. He shouldn't have to say that, but he's trying to drive the point home. Why? Because humanity desperately wants to please God by their merits. Every religion of the world, you boil it down and it has the exact same tenets. Do a certain set of rules, hopefully God will be happy with you. Doesn't matter which religion you pick, pick one. That's gonna be, they're all the same. Do these things and hopefully you'll earn the favor of God. Whatever that God is and whoever, and whoever that God is. And here he says, no, it's by his grace as a gift. I just want to show you one other spot in the, in the word of God where this is used. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. Remember the, remember the by his grace as a gift, okay? Don't, don't forget that phrase. At the very end of your Bible, Revelation 22, verse 17. This is the end of time when God will finally call us all to be his and all this mess we live in will be gone. Listen to this. The spirit 
and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Without price is the same words for as a gift. You can't buy it. Now, you might be here this morning and think, Pastor Justin, of course I can't buy grace. You're not whipping out your wallet to buy grace. But you know what you might be doing? You might be here this morning thinking that you're earning grace. You might be that kind of person that one of my friends was who had their devotions every day for hours because they were trying to earn the favor of God. And they were miserable. They weren't even Christians. But they thought, if I just read my Bible more, God will be happy with me. And maybe for you, it's, I've got, I've got, to, I've got to evangelize more. If I evangelize X number of times a month, God will be happy with me. And so you've set up this artificial rubric so that if you do these things, God's happy with you. Do you see how you're trying to buy grace? You're trying to earn favor. And it's so hard because as Christians, yes, we want to read our Bibles. Yes, we want to pray. We want to evangelize. We want to gather with the church. But does it come out of a heart that's been liberated by justification or a heart that's trying to earn it? Are you trying to earn? Because if you're trying to earn it, you're a wreck. I guarantee it. If you're trying to earn the favor of God, you're a wreck. Anybody ever watch the Ed Sullivan show? Anybody? Awesome. I never did. Um, But it's on YouTube, all right? Um, The Ed Sullivan show had this guy who would spin plates on steel rods. And and he would spin spin the plate on the rod and then he would set up another rod and spin the plate on the rod, and they worked like giant tops. And, you know, so that's the talent for the night. And he would spin all of these plates on these rods, and then they would start to wobble, and he would run back around and fix them all and keep them spinning until, obviously, they all go crashing and everybody laughs. That's how some of us are when it comes to our Christian lives. You're trying to earn the favor of God by spinning your plates, and you're a wreck because you've not come to the point of realizing It's a declaration of righteousness by grace as a gift. And I can't earn it, and I can't pay for it. Jesus did it all. And I can just come to God by faith and say, Lord, I'm done. I'm done trying to please you to earn your favor. See, we get to live for God. We get to live for God. You're not pleasing him so that he'll love you. He'll never love you more and he'll never love you less than he does in Jesus. On your good days, he doesn't love you more. And on your bad days, he doesn't love you less because you have been declared to be righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. Through the redemption that is in Christ. Jesus bought you. That's redemption. He bought you. He bought you back. You were a slave to sin, and he paid the price for you. When you're a slave to sin, guess what? You don't liberate yourself. You can't because you're a slave to sin. But the word redemption is a beautiful word, and it's all throughout the scriptures. The redemption that is in Christ. Do you see the God-centeredness of this passage? We believe by faith. He does a work. 
He redeems us. Can you imagine with me the horror of a slave market? Maybe you've seen it in a movie or read it in a book and it's just grotesque. People being bought and sold like commodities. Helpless. Well, according to this verse and the use of this word alone, that's us. That's us. We are helpless to free ourselves. We are slaves to sin. And Jesus steps in, praise be to God, and through the redemption that is in Christ, you and I can be redeemed. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. Well, he goes on. This Jesus, God, put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There are those today who try to deny the wrath of God in the gospel. Propitiation is a word that historically has been translated the wrath-satisfying payment. The wrath-satisfying payment. The word is, is interesting. The Greek word is hilasterion. And that may mean nothing to you, but it's pretty cool. Because if you read your Old Testament, you'll see the word mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. Are you familiar with that? There's this little ark with the angels, and it's called the mercy seat. When they translated the Bible, the Old Testament, from Hebrew into Greek, guess what word is used for mercy seat? The same word as propitiation. Because it was there that the blood of an animal was sprinkled to atone for the wrath of God against sinners. And so here, in the mind of a Jewish reader, they knew exactly what was going on. God put forward his son as a wrath-satisfying payment by the shedding of his own blood. That's propitiation. So again, you and I deserve to stand in that place and suffer under the wrath of God. But praise be to God, that wrath was spent in its entirety on his son. There are, again, some today who say, oh no, God's not a God of wrath. Well, if he's not a God of wrath, he cannot be a God of love either. He must be both. He is consummately loving, and praise be to God, he loves himself to the end and the perfections of himself. And because he is good, loving himself is actually good for us. Because he is consummately good, and therefore he hates all things opposed to him. And according to Romans 3.23, that's us. So we deserve his wrath, but Jesus became our redemption and our propitiation by his blood. Isn't that news this morning? That we deserve the punishment of God for our sins. And I really believe that even if you don't like talking about the wrath of God, we really know we deserve it. I think it's what causes people into great cases of depression, even suicide. Oh, I've done things, and I know I deserve something for them. And that guilt can eat at you. It's what causes people to be absolutely terrified on their deathbed. Because maybe I, maybe I deserve something for my sin. And, and we look at the scriptures and say, yes, you do. But Jesus stepped in your place. And he became the propitiatory sacrifice for your sin. Look at it, he says it again. Just receive it by faith. That's the part we say, just believe in him and say, God, I'm done. 
I'm done trying to be righteous. I'm done trying to live as though I have no sin. I'm done trying to act as though I have it all together. And I'm going to come by faith, believing in this redemption, in this propitiation, in this justification based in Jesus alone. So he goes on in verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness. What showed his righteousness? The crushing of his son. There is no greater act that could show the righteousness of God than the killing of Jesus. Nothing displayed his righteousness to this degree. Because in this moment, he was willing to to crush the Son of God. The, The second member of the Trinity, there has never been any disruption in the Trinity for all eternity. God has dwelled in perfect unity for all time. And in this moment, he thought, I'm gonna crush my son. I'm gonna pour my wrath out on him. Why? To display to all humanity for the final time that I am righteous. And in this act of displaying righteousness, I will make all who believe in me righteous. I will do what the law could not do. The law could not make you righteous. But this will. So it showed God's righteousness. He goes on, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This is a reference to all the sins of the Old Testament. He passed over them, not ignoring them. He was keeping, ta- he was keeping catalog of them. And Jesus paid for those. That's the point. Jesus took those. How, how did Moses, how was Moses forgiven? Jesus. How was Abraham forgiven? Jesus. How was David declared to be righteous? Jesus. He hadn't come yet. That's okay. They were waiting for him. Just like we look back to him. So God was patient. He was patient. In his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Because in verse 26, he was going to show his righteousness at the present time. That was a reference to the gospel, the coming of Jesus. At the present time was a reference to the first century when Jesus would come, he displayed his righteousness. And again, the end of verse 26, I wish they wouldn't translate it this way, so that he might be the righteous one, is a better translation, that's the word just, so that God might be the righteous one and the one who makes righteous those who have faith in Jesus. That's the end of verse 26. So that God might be the righteous one And if you're here this morning, I hope that you eagerly and readily admit, of course God's righteous. He is everything we're not. But are you willing this morning to say, he is the one who makes me righteous? This isn't my performance. This isn't my duty. This is simply God is the righteous one, and God alone is the one who makes sinners righteous, based solely on their faith in Jesus. Look at verse 28 this morning as we finish and turn our attention to the table of the Lord. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The the Reformation called it sola fide, faith alone. Now let's be clear. If you have justifying faith, You are being transformed. You have transforming faith. 
So this is not faith alone to go live your reprobate life however you want. That's Romans 5.1, may it never be. That's a perversion of the gospel. But being declared righteous by God as a legal declaration is by faith apart from works of the law. And so maybe, maybe this morning you're a child of God, but you realize, wow, I think I've begun to trust in this level of performance to earn the righteousness of God. Would you, would you stop trying to earn it? Would you come to this morning to the point of saying, Lord, forgive me, I, it is you and you alone. Maybe this morning you're hearing this and you're like, man, you know, I've heard God loves me, I've heard Jesus died for me, but I've never done that. I've never by faith stopped and said, I am so unrighteous. God, make me righteous. I believe in Jesus. I'm done trying to earn it. Because maybe you've never come to that point. You've done church, you've done religion, but you've never come to the point of actually embracing your absolute brokenness. God calls it unrighteousness. And saying, God, make me righteous. Oh, that God looks upon me and counts me righteous. Well, brothers and sisters, nothing, truly, nothing has fueled in my heart greater love for Jesus than these truths. These are the truths that that when God began to work them into my soul, Christ became sweeter. And living for him was a joy, not a duty. Because I no longer was trying to make God happy with me. I realized that he was utterly pleased with me and his son. And because Jesus lived the life I could never live and died the death I could never die, and because I had been declared righteous by faith in his son, I was free to live for God, not earn his favor. Oh, that we would not be a church that in any way tries to earn his favor, but that we would just joyfully live for him. So as we turn to communion this morning, we do communion because we need to remember this, don't we? We need to remember Jesus. Not just a piece of bread, not just a a cup. We need to remember him. And so this morning, Maybe this can be the first time you actually take communion as a, as a child of God. You're going to take it this morning and say, I get it now. I get it. I'm trusting in Jesus alone. Maybe you're going to take it for the 10,000th time. You're going to say, it's sweet today. It's sweet because, because Jesus has fully satisfied the wrath of God. And I stand before God as righteous, something that I am not because Jesus became something that he was not in my place. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to do something a little different as we take communion. Because communion is actually the word for fellowship. It's the, you can't do communion on your own. It's something we do in the body of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to distribute the elements. And then we're going to actually pray out loud together as one voice, as a church. And we're going to pray this together. We're going to say, Lord Jesus, I thank you for your life that was lived for me. And then we'll eat together. Because as a body, we're going to praise him for living a righteous life. And then we're going to take that. And then we'll we'll hand out the the cup and we'll pray together as one voice. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your blood that was spilled for me. And then we'll take together. Because we do this as a body. This is one body of believers coming together saying, Lord You've redeemed us, 
and we praise you. So brothers, would you come forward and we will go right into communion this morning. Once I give the men the elements to distribute, um, I'll pray and then, and then we'll sing as they pass that out, okay?